Hello and welcome to the first ever episode 13 of Fintech Insider. Today we're joined by Faith Reynolds from the Payment Strategy Forum and Lindsay Barber from City AM. We've got a great couple of weeks coming up for you with more and more guests, but first and foremost, we want to say thank you. We've been downloaded in 94 countries and we continue to top the iTunes business podcast chart. That's thanks to you. Later in the show, we have Costa Peric joining us from the Gates Foundation, but for now, on with the news. And so on with the news. And of course, joining us this week, we have uh, Lindsay Barber from City AM again. Lindsay, say hello. Hi. And Faith Reynolds from the Payment Strategy Forum. Faith, give us a hello. Hello. Nice to have you with us. So I think um, we've got a number of interesting stories this week. So let's just jump right into the first one. One from the Financial Times here saying banks are not making proper use of fintech, especially in their capital markets division on the, on the Financial Times. So Jason, you and I have talked about this one on previous podcasts and uh, finding it, you know, that a lot of banks had focused and a lot of fintech had focused on you know really the easy stuff payments and lending and, and it seems to have not got further further in what do we think is going on here uh, well i think it's that that wave that we were talking about or the tide i guess would be an easy way of talking about it where people have have come along to pick off the underserved or overcharged consumer plays first because actually that consumer technology thing you know is, is really some somewhere to focus on and then we've seen the you know new digital challenger banks come along and now there's a lot of talk of SME banking or digital SME banking. And we're seeing this sort of tide go back into it, you know, then into corporate and transaction banking. But you know, I know nothing about capital markets. I know you've had a lot more sort of exposure to that world. Um, how do you think it fits? So I think it's interesting because there aren't a lot of people that really understand how capital markets divisions in banks work. The vast majority of the startups that are in this space tend to be people that worked for one of the major investment banks or you know, an asset manager for a few years, left and you know, kind of rage quit and said, I can do this better myself. And I think those are the only ones out there. And then the only real people that understand them enough to invest in them are the banks themselves. And the banks themselves will you know, have proven a track record to be able to invest in startups as a group of investment banks, but only when it's market structure. So if it's um, CLS Bank, you know, for, for FX clearing internationally, this is something that you know is worth sticking into Wikipedia and finding out what CLS Bank is because they clear something like $1.4 trillion a day. It's absolutely phenomenal amounts of money flows through these, these organizations. And yet nobody knows who they are apart from maybe 30, 40,000 people on earth. So it's this, it's this crazy thing where you've got this tiny group of people that knows about it, but this dramatic opportunity because when you talk to both large corporates and you know asset managers they feel just as annoyed with their banks as any consumer does so they want to see change and i think what boston consulting group is saying here is there's probably a need for for that to go there um interesting story i mean i don't know if faith Lindsay, you had any thoughts here yeah absolutely the um i i think it it's absolutely that kind of, like you say, the first wave. It's always going to be kind of doing that proof of concept of, oh, what's this fintech? What's this scary thing? Oh, we can make it, you know, very easy and palatable uh, to show that it works if it's just, you know, your standard retail banking. Digging deeper than that, I think it's quite tough. Like you say, there's not as much expertise in it. Weirdly, it's probably where the banks make more of their money, so they should be looking at it. I think, particularly, it seems like. They're more focused, like you say, with the CLS, they're more focused on blockchain, which is probably at an earlier stage. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably just a case of, of, of just, you know, it probably will happen. 
it's going to take longer because yeah. it's happened later. I guess the question is, you know, what's the drive? Because on, on the consumer side of things, there are massive changes in consumer expectations. Everyone's got a smartphone, everyone uses Facebook, and you can see that that discrepancy with the services that are being provided. SME banking, you know, even worse. But when it's B2B and when it's large bank to large bank, you know, if they're using a fax machine and they always have, what moves them away from a fax machine or from a, you know, a telephone call? And it either has to be some amazing sort of revenue generating opportunity or massive cost saving. So you've got to bear in mind at the moment, capital markets are divisions of banks, especially in Europe, are bleeding through Basel III requirements, you know, capital requirements. That's the part of the organization that's failing it. And you'll see if you look at the annual reports of most of those divisions in, in certainly in Europe, their, their sort of profit pool has gone down by, you know, it's 25% or less of what it was five, six years ago. I mean, they are lopping body parts off. They're, they're cutting the limbs of the organization just to keep the doors open. But they've got the same cost of infrastructure. So just like um, in a retail bank, you have a set of products where the back-end systems are old and kind of legacy and, and cost a lot. Now you've got these these legacy systems that you know kind of are all interwoven together. But what somebody described it to me as is, is it's like performing open-heart surgery in a nuclear power station in a populated <laughs> area trying to change anything inside of because the, I saw a stat somewhere that half of the money in the world moves back and forth across the entire world every day. Because of um, complex contracts like derivatives and, um, and some of the securities out there, money moves around the world a lot faster. Because even though it feels like it's sitting in your bank account, it's actually being packaged and repackaged and resold. And that's really important for the lifeblood of the economy that money can move around the world in that way. It's It's kind of like moving like water. It's this really ephemeral thing but the cost of keeping that running the amount of people that actually understand how that works is limited and the ones that do say oh it's 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 difficult and it'll cost you kind of like plumbers <laughs> and then there are some people out there that will tell you that look there are fintechs that can do this small bit of the problem this small bit of the problem and to which a bank's reaction is well i don't want you to solve a bit of the problem because the cost of change for me to solve a bit of the problem is so high i need you to solve all of the problem and only recently in the last couple of months i was talking to a chap named uh, leon reese um who's a friend of mine and he was saying what if you could take all of these startups and put them together into a platform, do like the sales force of capital markets? And I think I've heard four or five people coming up with this trend now. And I think that's that may be something that we start to see. So, Which I guess takes us on nicely to the next story. This was a thin extra piece about ING. The, well, the CEO, Ralph Hammers, had an investor day in the Netherlands recently. Uh, suggested or stated that they were going to invest uh, 800 million euros in digital transformation initiatives over the next five years while shedding 7,000 jobs. Um, so is this another, it's, it's interesting 800 million because at least in the UK a couple of years ago, it seemed everyone was going to put a billion. You know, and I wonder if you know times are tough. And now you know now you need to put eight hundred million into into digital transformation. Maybe it's just the currency fluctuation. Maybe, maybe. A couple of years ago, it was everyone was standing up to say we're going to spend a billion on digital transformation. Oh, a couple were saying that we could spend two billion on digital transformation. I mean, Faith, how does a headline like this um, come across to you, especially when they say they're going to shed seven thousand jobs at the same time? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess uh, there's a few different thoughts that occur to me. One is just the general kind of context, so the digitalisation 
the economy. Where where is that going? Where where do all these seven thousand people go? I mean, what jobs do they get? And so there's that question about what's our kind of long term view of a society that's much more kind of led by digital and automated. So just the whole kind of you know futuristic stuff. So I, I guess there is a question about you know what does our society look like in the new sort of digital world? And then I guess the other thing is just around things like inclusion and you know branch. Branches are just sort of shutting down left, right and centre and we need to find a way of being able to connect people into financial services without these kind of costly branches. But, uh, you know, I'm interested, you know, Jason, what's your kind of thinking around that as a kind of uh, digital bank? How do you kind of interface with people who want that kind of personal touch or to be able to just talk to somebody? Sure. Well, you know, society in entirety is going through a digital shift, but not all at the same time and not all at the same speed. So while there are, you know, it's not an age thing, I think it's a psychographic thing. It's a, are you digital or not? And there are, you know, the silver surfers who, you know, my, my dad plays the Xbox one with his uh, grandkids, you know, at night, Call of Duty or whatever. It's like, you know, he's, he's so into it. Hey, dad. Um, but the uh, uh, shout out to Jason's dad. There you go. But it's not all all at once, and so there are vast ways of society that just aren't going to be ready for that. But that makes it tough because now you've got you know four digital banks launching in anger next year, arguably. You know, Atom, Tandem, Starling, Monzo, all will all be launching. You know, a lot of a lot of products. Um, you've got all of the big banks spending billions a year on digitization. And who's going to look after those, you know, the yeah. people who are left behind? And it's also, well, it's also just, you know, even those incumbents that have got branches. I went, I went into a, to a branch recently. I've got an account, kind of not often used, but money goes in. And, you know, a payment went out over the last little while. So I thought I would, but they never sent me cards. So I've got these outdated cards went in. And the branch experience was just rubbish. Oh. But, you know, but actually their, their mobile app is one of the best. So it's like, oh... So I kind of see where you put your investment. You know, they couldn't tell me what my transactions for the last year had been. Wow. You know, but they could if I just was willing to move. <laughs> yeah. And actually, have you got the... Well, it's like, I don't need it, so I haven't got the... I haven't got this, I don't know my PIN, I don't even know what the overdraft service is. I can't answer any of your security questions. It was a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. But, but there's that, you know, there's that even where you've got a branch network, yeah. you can see the sort of transition through to digital. And actually, it's about how do we help you move to digital? Yeah, let, yeah. let me upload the app onto your phone for you. Let me talk you through how to use yeah. it. So there's that kind of, you know, there's that transition and it's how we how we get through that, how we help people. It, it kind of reminds me of you know people who want credit for stuff they're supposed to do. Like you're supposed to be digital, you're supposed to be leaning down. You know, uh, it's the old Chris Rock sketch. I, I, I take care of my kids. It's like, yeah, you're supposed to do that. Like you're supposed to do these things. Don't tell me what you're gonna do. Tell me what you're gonna deliver. And I think the problem they've got is setting an expectation in the market where we're gonna deliver this thing and then everybody will start measuring them. Okay, you said you're gonna deliver the thing. Where is the thing? Um, whereas actually, um, what I think the, the smaller banks have got, which is, I mean, was it Monzo said, here's our roadmap. Um, this is what we're going to deliver. And if we don't deliver it, we don't deliver it, but we're, we're going to work through it. And what do you think of it? There's, there's something about winning consumer trust there that I think is quite interesting and, and a different tack that um, maybe maybe bank PR teams could, could take a look at. But um, I mean, I can completely understand why they do it. it it's, you know, it's competitive. Uh, you know, they're not going to be like, well, this is our business model. Is, you know, they're, they're not going to be completely open about it. I do think they need to be clearer. So some, you know, even the stuff that, you know, British banks are doing, I think it was a, 
event a couple of weeks ago and Barclays Techstars Accelerator. Um, someone asked the question of, you know, so you've been around how many years, a few years, two years, three years. Uh, the things that you've been working on, how many of those have actually gone through to actual products that your bank offers? Mm-hmm. And the answer was none. <laughs> so even that spending that, you know, it might be that they are spending money on doing these things and this digital transformation. What, what does that actually produce across the bank um, is contributing to their business, um, you know, is questionable. Um, uh, do you think that's because the, it challenges, so anything that sort of properly kind of looks at, sort of, say, the consumer experience starts to challenge quite a lot of the, 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 the existing ways of working, it brings in kind of risk and compliance and all of those things. Do you think it's because actually you can do some really cool stuff but then you look at it and go, hang on a minute, I've just spoken to our legal or our risk and, and they've said no. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> so that might be why it didn't get past the kind of... Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of bureaucracy. I I, I, one, of, one of the things I blogged about a couple of years ago was this idea that um, innovation struggles to escape the death grip of committees in a bank. And there are so many layers of committees and, you know, um, this one has a parallel and a horizontal committee structure that I need to get to to this Manco so that I can go to Xco to talk to Steerco about Manco's Xco Skadeerco. Are you like, what? You just like, I, I can't, people talk this weird language of like all of these different, and I need to talk to credit risk so that they can talk to wholesale risk so that operational risk can talk to risk risk and you just start to boggle the mind boggles but a lot of this is there reacting to banks having done something stupid 20 years ago and dealing with people's money it's there for a very good reason it's there to protect consumers but it makes getting anything done a victory and so if shipping a barely working app is is a victory in itself because you got it out Um, and if you build this amazing user experience what you get is this committee that says, oh, well, you know, you need a, a longer T's and C's to make this work. And, and the user experience is watered down and watered down and watered down. So then you eventually either don't ship the thing or you turn it live and never put any customers on it because, you know, they'd hate it. And so I think that there's this cultural thing that's really, really unfortunate. Um, having been close to some of the companies in, in the Textiles Accelerator, they had some great things, amazing products that are now working with other banks or that are now doing extremely well themselves with different customer bases. I saw an Air, um, Air School, fantastic company, you know, helping people who can't get access to credit or can't get access to, to bank accounts normally get access to bank accounts by looking at big data. A bank should love that. But in theory, you know, it's actually very hard for a bank to implement that given all of their requirements, but they're doing really well with telcos now. So, you know, if this is helping startups and the bank has learned something from it in the process, maybe there's still a good business case there, but it's not the business case they set out to achieve, which I think is interesting. So not that 800 million will be going on just lots of meetings. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And speaking of big headline numbers, Lindsay, there's one here that Deutsche Bank are in a race to settle the Department of Justice 14 billion US dollar fine. There's a number you would have liked to get your hands on, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's a it's an ongoing saga that's quite long winded, and and most of the you know the majority of UK banks have already settled this kind of stuff. So this this dates back quite a while. You know, I don't think anyone ever feels sorry for a bank that big. 
I gotta say, I do have a, a shred of sympathy for Deutscher on this one because having seen, having sat through a bank's internal training processes on uh, anti-money laundering and um, terrorist financing and, and you know, fin crime, they are going bending over backwards to train their staff to understand what the rules are. Like the amount of times I had to retake that test because I couldn't figure out what type of country Iran was, and you know, was it one, two, or three? Cat? Like I don't know. And besides, I'm like the techie guy. Why are you training me on this? But uh, so the, there is a real effort to get people to know. But actually, I think it comes down to a different type of risk here. So you're trying to move money from A to B for large corporates who you have very big relationships with, who happen to have won a deal over here, and your only protection is to go look at a load of people's passports manually or another bank is doing that for you and your only protection is to sit with a bank for a couple of weeks and watch how they do that process there is no like automation here there's no machine learning there's no there's nothing in there to really really help them um, there's a company called Ciari Analytics uh, launched by an ex-Goldman guy um, and what they do is they look at um, a number of passports and a number of transaction bits of information, and they actually use machine learning to try and figure out, is there a, an added systemic risk in performing this transaction here? And banks seem to look at that and turn their head sideways and go, I can see why that would be interesting. But then getting that live and really automating these processes seems really difficult. Manual processes, I think, are, are causing a lot of risk, which um, I don't think is a story that's talked about. It's weird as well, because you can definitely, you know, Computers are vastly better at humans than doing this kind of thing. But I imagine, you know, anyone who goes, oh, I've got AI that can sort this out for you yeah. as a bank. A bank is going to turn around and go, oh, but there isn't a person that has oversight of this. Well, they want a wet signature. There's this, um, well, there's a liability thing and there's also a, um, there's this, thing in banking that I saw where somebody went, but I want a wet signature on that. Like it's like somehow getting getting a signature from a pen has just made everything more secure. And it's like, no, it's way less secure. And everybody in information security knows that. But it's the process that was there before that you can always fall back to. And and there's that so there's that whole cultural thing. But the, I think the regulator and everybody in the industry is reinforcing this thing. It's all Do you think, I mean just going back to your point, you know, having sort of Sympathy and you know, listening to you, I think, oh yes, I, you know, I've done a bit of, you know, AML training. But what's? Do you think that there is a cultural issue more broadly, or do you think actually that this is just a, a technical? These are technical problems. I think it's, we could have just sorted out with much better kind of. So it's going back. I think it's more a process issue than a technical issue, um, and it's a process and a, and a cultural issue. And the cultural issue is more about change of process than it is about um, humans being evil. I fundamentally don't believe the majority of people who work in a bank or even some of the people that have allowed these transactions to go through are evil. I think, in fact, quite the opposite. They have a very hard job and they have very arcane processes and they're trying to do the best with it. Having met some of the people that work in compliance, I, I'm blown away by the the professionalism of some of these people and what they're trying to do and the terrible tools they try and do it with. Um, and then somebody comes running to them and says, I've got this massive piece of business. This client has to be live tomorrow. And their only response is to say no. So they're the enemy inside the bank. You know, they're the business prevention department. But actually, so to be them is very, very hard. And to give them tools to do their job better is also very, very hard because the people in that job don't get a lot of funding and support because they're not winning new business. I think that's a cultural issue. But surely just in the way you've described that there's a cultural issue, there's the compliance department over here mm. and these people who win business over here, actually, surely you want to see those things merge across the police. Actually, the people winning business are complying 
you know, with the spirit of absolutely. So it's not. So it's not. A, I mean, that's if anything, that's one of the problems is that kind of split that silo. So yes and no, but you do see that um, they've now got um, kind of the the people on the front line are liable for doing that. They have to do a lot of the compliance. They do most of the heavy lifting on the compliance stuff. They prepare all the documents. They so they do a lot of that work, and then compliance reviews it, and then audit reviews that. So there's there's kind of these three stages in which it's done. So I think it's architected very well as a manual process, but it's a manual process. Um, so it's just uh, coming into this century, I think, is, is kind of the issue rather than um, anybody trying to be nefarious or evil, which, which is how it appears, I think, in the press. But again, nuance doesn't play well um, to, to the public. It just creates that whole sort of, that, you know, sort of a blanket of mistrust. So yeah. you know, we did some work, you know, wondering why people on the panel, the financial services consumer panel did, you know, piece of why don't people move when they hear about a big PPI mis-selling scandal? And part of it is because they think there's nothing better elsewhere, but part of it is that they can't connect that kind of global issue with their local experience. But what they know is that they don't like that kind of mm-hmm. global problem and it creates that sort of general feeling of mistrust and you know, and just general dislike. And you know, I think the, the fact that there are such vast sums of money involved and actually people have earned vast sums of money is still quite sort of prevalent in people's minds, you know, yeah. elsewhere where they're still suffering from a, a, you know, the effects of the financial crisis. London has sort of moved on, but actually there are people whose lives are still affected by it. So I think that's, you know, that's when you, that's when they need to clear it up quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Not to make everything about Brexit, but I think it's absolutely that uh, that there's a weird thing of going, we don't trust the big banks, you know, we're still connected with the financial crisis. But on the other hand, you know. Especially in London, we're going. Oh my God! Like we're going to lose all these jobs in banking because of Brexit potentially. Um, but we, no one cares, even though it really, really matters because it will matter to those people, uh, you know, further out in the country because it's the general economy. I think, you know, I'll take a bit of responsibility, not all of it, as a journalist of trying to explain how, yeah, that was bad. Uh, you know, financial crisis is terrible, um, but also actually, it's still quite fundamental to. The economy um, and and people should care. I think we definitely need to do a better job at like explaining that and that, that it does matter. Speaking of trust issues, um, there's a startup here called uh, W21 that's moved to Berlin, but not at all as it seems. Um, so this is an interesting story. If you haven't read it, um, it's on FT Alphaville, and it's by a chap called Kadim Schuber, who is very, very interested in finding out what's really going on inside fintech firms because he's um, he's not con- he's convinced it can't all be um, hype and, and magic and, and and fairy tales. And as you get through this, W20 W WB21 apologies is a startup that looks. Looks like it deals in FX, a little bit like TransferWise, except its numbers, it appears to have um, processed uh, more than a million customers and sending cross-border payments of over 5.2 billion inside of one year, which took TransferWise four and a half years. There's growth, and then there's growth, and then this is growth. Uh, is <laughs> yeah. what, and so Kadim's written this with his um, tongue firmly planted in his in his cheek, and kind of got through to the point where he starts uh, calling out that the chap that's done this claims to have sold an organisation to Bank Thai in November 2008. But when you go look it up, that uh, that sale appears to have never happened. It was never on uh, on any records anywhere, uh, but it did get a few headlines. And similarly, he's he's then making he pulls out on the W. B21 website, a bunch of articles where people have covered them in Forbes and Yahoo and Bloomberg. Uh, but actually, what they're covering is uh, links to the corporate overview pages that were created by WB21 themselves. So, there's, yeah, 
there's, there's just something here that doesn't feel quite right. So I, I think, you know, is fintech potentially, um, that, that are we having the second power technologies here? Is fintech just as bad as the banks? Like, can we can we risk a, a second trust issue problem coming? This is a really interesting one. For me, it sounds like uh, they've found a very good opportunity to be able to add something to that press page by going, hey, we're in London and now we're moving to Berlin. Yeah. You know, that's a great Brexit story. Um, Topical. It's, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's um, all the right buttons for any journalist. Again, it's not to say that, that, that that's not the case, but, you know, there is a lot of bluster in fintech. Which is good, you know, that's the whole thing, you're a disruptor, you shout about these things, you know, you would absolutely expect that of any startup. It's, it's just one of those uh, things, isn't it, that there, there are always going to be companies that want to, you know, push PR and push their stories and are sort of naturally a PT Barnum of, you know, of the fintech world. And, you know, where is that line? What can you say and what can't you say? You know, and a lot of the the article goes into questioning a variety of claims and then getting responses from the company. So they were definitely pushing the bounds of of what, you know, including a link to Forbes and Inc and Bloomberg business really meant on their, their webpage. But as far as he's, uh, as a, you know, there's nothing, I guess, on the kind of legal side that, um, that you'd say on this, apart from just trying to make a massive splash in order to, you know, to get more customers. It's an interesting one. Um, so slightly different flavor next up. IBM have put out an article saying banks are now ready for the real world of blockchain, which is interesting since they're selling a lot of blockchain things. But um, So cynical. Uh, am I? Am I really? This, well, um, and, and actually, look, um, to, to, to flip that around, they surveyed 200 big banks and 15% intend to implement full-scale commercial solutions as early as 2017, um, with mass adoption um, not far behind, 65% expecting to get there in the next three years. I think this is pretty pretty lofty expectations, but nobody's defined what does full-scale implementation mean. Is the, I, I get off asked on panels an awful lot of like, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, when did big data really happen? Like, when did mobile happen? And Historically, you look back after 10 years and you kind of go, it was that moment. But really, you know, history will judge that. So it's very hard to say. You can't deny the wave, I think, is coming. But it, the moment at which it flips is really interesting. I know, Lindsay, you've wrestled with, with that question a little bit. Do you have any views on, on that point? It's surprising. Um, and I think it just shows how when we talk about fintech and we question things like, you know, how effective it is where blockchain seems like it's slightly different just because if you look at who's backing it you know you've got the tech companies you've got IBM you've got uh, you know all the banks basically it seems like it's very quickly become the thing whether that pans out and it does actually happen by 2017 2019 is, is questionable but I think it just shows how much Banks are going big with it. Yeah. And you've got to define it, really, I think. Well, yeah. It, I mean, anyone could just go, oh, well, we're using a little bit of blockchain for doing this tiny thing. Yeah. So, lunch um, oh, yeah, we're using room booking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> blockchain for room booking. There you go. <laughs> uh, that, that just happened. IP. It's, uh, it's, it's recorded. Jason came up with that use case. There's no kind of dodgy changing your room booking at the last minute. No, no. no it's like, set. You know for sure. There's an audit trail. <laughs> and we've... <laughs> 
we've all agreed to it. And if you get one of those room squatters, you can you proof of kicking them out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course, it might take the energy of a small country to run that uh, that process. But hey, I, I think it's depends on your consensus mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> you could do it for hot desking as well, couldn't you? Like, yeah. Like, which go. desk you booked? Sorry, just uh, stop podcasting now. <laughs> That's totally it. Another little nugget in here that's quite interesting is um, they say financial markets institutions um, finding 14% of those financial market institutions intend to implement full-scale commercial blockchain solutions in 2017. So this isn't just the banks. This is the likes of insurance companies and asset managers. So I've spent a bit of time with um, asset managers in the past couple of weeks, and the view is generally, do I need to do anything right now? But it seems like a few of them have already decided, uh, which I think is quite interesting. Okay, uh, moving on to the next story. Alipay are launching in three London stores. So Alipay, the famous um, Chinese uh, payment mechanism, the Chinese PayPal, I guess, would be the equivalent. Lindsay, do you have any thoughts on this one? I think it's just going to take over. It's stealthily taking over. It's got such a huge, huge, huge market in um, China and Asia that it dwarfs what we're doing here in terms of uh, kind of mobile pay and uptake of it is just massive. So there's a big um, kind of Chinese holiday that mm-hmm. on you know WeChat and across all the social networks in China um, is just astonishing how much money um, I think it's kind of red envelope thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, hazy details, but it's mind blowing. And you know all this is happening. We're just sat here going, oh yeah, you know people love to use uh, Apple Pay um, to do that oyster in the morning. If they're doing that here, um, it, I think it just serves, uh, you know, kind of your Chinese visitors coming here. Um, but they are, if they do that and they roll that out and they lay the groundwork, um, I think there's a potential there for them to be offered across Europe, you know, that, that could rival that. It could, it could be a foot in the door, couldn't it? I mean, we did an Asia-Pacific episode, um, episode eight of Fintech Insider, for those of you who may have joined us recently and didn't didn't catch it. And we talked at length about some of the giants like uh, Alipay and WeChat, uh, who are doing yeah, tr- just tremendous volumes. And it's interesting that the, the Chinese tourist market is now significant. We were talking before the podcast started, Faith, about how you know, there are some stores that have you know, kind of adopted these payment mechanisms because they have such high footfall of Chinese tourists. Could that be a way into the market for some of these companies? Because these fintech players that are, or payments players in China haven't really gotten out of China, but they have such huge scale in their home market. Do they have a need to? It's... I think it's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think it does something about kind of the, the kind of force of retailers in, in the payment space and just the role that they play in kind of bringing new things to, to market. But it's quite a, um, I think one of the things that I'm interested in is the, the extent to which there are specific consumer segments and we can design services to, around them. Or so, you know, Body Shop has decided to kind of invest in Alipay and for a specific segment because it's worth a lot of money. And you just sit see, you know, sitting on the payment strategy forum, we've been thinking about um, you know, changing payment system, but one of the one of the ideas is to facilitate massive innovation payments and one of the difficulties is, is coming up with use cases saying actually you might be able to do this new type of payment, but one of the things suggested is actually might have new payments for new segments of the community. So actually, you know, for students there might be in this new kind of type of payment. And it just made me think of that as actually, yeah, there's you know, if you can get a big 
sort of segment of people who all want to use one type of payment service, actually then you've got retailers who are willing to to work with that. Jason, you were mentioning this when it comes to uh, Revolut. Um, You were sort of saying that there are certain use cases for which people will use a new product and will change because they they have that specific need and it's a good first way to get people to adopt something. Yeah, I guess you've got looking, this is looking at it from, from two sides. On one, one side, you've got very small young startups that want to, to make a splash to, to gain their beachhead to, in order to grow into big companies. So rather than offering a mass market product, you have to find you know, smaller, very specific niches that you can then serve, especially if they're underserved and overcharged. Mm-hmm. So travelers have traditionally you know, fallen into that category with forex uh, fees from their banks and credit card companies. Uh, students uh, you can pull out, you can pull out immigrants, so you've got companies like Manise that are very focused specifically on helping people that would find it difficult to open an account because of KYC you know, problems, uh, you can focus on that. So on one hand you've got the kind of the small end and then you've got Alipay and they are not, you know, they are in no way you know, comparable to those small um, players. They represent like the 900-pound gorilla on the far side of the of the earth um, that could could seriously take on just about anyone. I mean, they're, um, I was just looking at their Wikipedia page, but they um, had the biggest market share in China with 300 million users and control of just under half of China's online payment market in 2014. According to Credit Suisse, the value of their online transactions grew uh, in 2008 to around 4 trillion, so 660 billion uh, in 2012. So, you know, this is a company that has that um, has control of just under half of China's online payment uh, marketplace and is looking to go elsewhere. So and they're looking to come to Europe. You know? So, um, so just in terms of just sheer firepower, sheer number of users, you know, sheer capabilities, they're there. That you know, that isn't. It could be seen as a beachhead, but with a, a massive army behind it, rather than a tiny startups looking for a secluded cove to come and, uh, you know, to land. One of the things I often say to uh, people who are just starting their career in fintech, there's a couple of people I've been speaking to recently, is, is study Alipay, study WeChat. Like, if you want to know what the future of fintech is going to look like, look east. If you haven't, and you work in a fintech startup, or if you work in a bank, and you've not at least read the Wikipedia page of these things, you absolutely need to, because they're, they're the future. Um, spe- as well, sorry, just to give it an example of just how big potentially could be to rival any other kind of payment system in, in Europe. It's very much like smartphones. Apple, huge, you know, big in the West. As soon as Chinese manufacturers started doing stuff, they easily started to rival Apple. But they've got that big, huge base just being in China, yeah, and then market. they can grow it in Europe. Um, like that China market is just so huge that yeah, it's great home market. Speaking of growing, Grow is a company that launches its app for socially responsible investing. Um, I think it's US only focused, but it's interesting. We've seen apps like kind of uh, Robinhood and Stash and um, robo advisors like Betterment. This one looks like it's mobile only and it's focusing only on sustainable investments, focusing on a younger, uh, younger set of users who are more selective about what they want to invest in and, and how they spend their money. I think this is an interesting one. Do you have any thoughts on this? Is this a trend? We're going to see more of do you think in, in the um, yeah I mean I think there's there's definitely room for more robo advice isn't there there's lots of kind of discussion about it although it still represents actually a very tiny percentage of 
of advice. I think this is a really interesting one because one, it you know, it focuses on social responsible investing, and and also because it's giving those sort of smaller funds, you know, kind of exposure to 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 kind of a new market. So in that sense, it's really sort of seems quite kind of up and coming, quite positive. I guess the the question which which I have is just that the whole cost and charges stuff in investment is very opaque, and mm-hmm. we're still struggling with it. And these platforms are doing better, but actually. The, we're still kind of wondering if we're servicing all the costs. So, you know, if you're aware of things like MIFID and Pritch, you'll know that there's a discussion about how do we service all the full costs that people are bearing when they make investments. And at, and at the moment, we, we just we just don't know what the full costs are. Mm. And and it's just difficult to know, is this, is this actually, is it, if it's, it says 0.25%, is, is it? Or, you know, what are the fund charges? Are they are they in there or not? And so there's this whole thing about, you know, socially responsible investing. I want to know, is the app socially responsible? Actually, mm-hmm. is it, you know, has it really kind of pulled those out? And there's, you know, so it's quite, a, I think it's, it's an interesting space. I expect we'll see more, um, especially, so the other thing I've kind of been looking at is in open banking. So as the kind of flow of people's transactional data becomes available, the extent to which we'll see sort of personal financial management platforms merge with kind of more advice platforms because obviously you get much more holistic view of some of these finances. So kind of interested in that space and thinking we'll see much more sort of robo-advice. And apart from the sort of transparency and costs and charges, the other thing is just protection. So there's this big kind of debate about what's advice, what's guidance. You know, do people know that they're covered? You know, do they have access to, you know, FCA compensation redress or not? And um, and I think that's just it's a it's a fascinating debate. And I think in some senses those answers are very clear about what constitutes guidance, what constitutes advice, you know, there's a lot of oh we're not quite sure, but actually no, if you read it it's it's, it's fairly clear. I think the, the the difficulty I see is just as as our finances become less sort of product based and more kind of sort of service mm. <laughs> service based from a consumer point of view, it all just blends into one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just sort of you know interesting. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, but where does where does robo advice fit in with that? Because that does seem to be a, a grey area. I know the FCA with their sandbox are very specifically looking at robo advice because when you've got algorithms that are essentially guiding you along a certain kind of process that isn't an individual it isn't a financial advisor that that algorithm hasn't passed any exams you know uh, I guess on some in, in some ways people want the equivalent of a personal banker and financial advisor looking after their finances but on the other hand want it both ways so if that goes wrong then I you know I want my money back um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a difference, isn't there, between people wanting their money back because their investment went down, they didn't expect that. That's that's fine. We don't expect people to get covered for that. But where they've been missold or they haven't been given good advice, then actually, yeah, they they you know they're entitled to getting some sort of compensation for that or to be able to complain or whatever. And I think that's that's the the, the that's the space really that we're talking about. We're not talking about where investments went down. Oh darn, I feel upset. We're talking about where people have been given the wrong advice for their circumstances, and you know. We've got kind of we've got this sort of idea that algorithms—they're not people; they don't take exams. No, but they are. You know? But the people who write them take sure. exams. And actually, there is a question about the extent to which we think algorithms are really good for running a whole load of other stuff. You know, if we think they can cope with automated compliance, then actually, what's the extent to which I should expect them to be pretty darn good at working out my finances, looking at all my transactional data, and coming up with good recommendation? And actually, there's so there is that kind of. I think it's 
it's blurred. Um, but I think it's a lot to do with the people. People have a general sense that they're protected, don't they? They just sort of yeah. if something goes wrong in this country, you feel like there's somewhere to go. And I think it's just that that space there is how do we help people understand. There isn't anywhere to go. Sorry, you made your own decision. And but, I think as well. Sorry, I just add something like this. I mean, the whole point of it is, I guess, uh, you know, it's an app on your phone. It's it's targeting a kind of millennial audience where it's like, you know, you should do this. Uh, you know, you can, you know, it's really positive really safe, in many senses. Isn't it? Yeah, future, there's lots of good things about making it. Making it much more open rather than a kind yeah, of and keeping it and focusing it on socially inve- socially responsible investments, which is really which is really exciting to see. Actually, see more of those those funds coming up. So. Absolutely. But then on the other hand, I would be very personally kind of dubious because I know nothing about it. It's like, can I trust this app to look after my money in a way that you know? Am I going to leave that here? Am I being an idiot? You know. Yeah. <laughs> Back with sort of Stalin and Monzo, we used to talk about ethical with a big E and a little E. You know, there's like ethical banking in terms of you're not going to invest in, you know, arms manufacturers yeah. and invading third world countries. And then there's ethical in not, you know, screwing customers by sending them, you know, mm. massive uh, unauthorized overdraft charges. But it does seem that there's the kind of day to day ethical, you know, way of doing business that that a big proportion of the population, especially young people, are very attracted to. They want to do business with people uh, and with organisations that they share values with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes back again to, to what we were saying about um, if you can find a niche audience, which you know niche mm-hmm. makes it seem like it's small, but actually can be quite lucrative. Um, I think there's probably a growing demand for that where it is you want to be doing something good, you don't want to be um, investing in, uh, you know, contributing to the environment going tits up. <laughs> Seth Godin calls this idea tribes, the idea that um, in marketing now you identify with a tribe, you identify with people that have the same beliefs as you wherever they are in the world and brands try and recognize a tribe but you see this with um, sports marketing brands you know adidas nike or the, they, they represent something about you they're aspirational you you are this sort of person so you're attracted to this sort of brand and seeing this in how you do your investing now coming up through apps is, is quite interesting it says something about you that you use the grow app and you invest using it and it might also attract an audience to it that hadn't looked at investing i mean the under 35s are notoriously bad for not saving and I resemble that remark um, in many ways. Um, and I think that it, it's good to try and get people into the idea of, of saving. Um, there's, a, there's a next article here um, the, from The Memo. There's an organization called Money, M-O-N-I. They give financial inclusion and dignity to European migrants and refugees. Jason, you've had a look at this story. It's, um, it's a little, little all over the place. Yeah, so they say that for, um, for essentially 2 million refugees arriving in Europe, like they've got no hope of opening a bank account. You know, there's no way, you know, when, when you have this tattered piece of paper and, you know, someone arrives, like, how the hell do you open a bank account? I know, like, well-educated, you know, uh, financially secure people who struggle to open a bank account when first, you know, arriving in the country, coming from first world countries. So essentially, for you know, for 2 million refugees, they're cut off from, you know, the fabric of society, from banking, from therefore getting a place, getting a job, getting all kinds of stuff going. And I know sort of monies and uh, money, we're going to have to be, you know, have struggles with these brands, I'm sure, at some point. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is one of those, again, underserved and problematic areas of how do you get someone to prove their identity? 
um, so that on one hand, you know, you're not allowing terrorist funding and fraud and you know everything else. But on the other hand, you're helping you know essentially two million you know migrants who are who are you know coming to the country. I, I don't know if you've seen anything about it. Yeah, I, mean, I just I I thought it was great. I mean, I a long time ago spent time trying to help um, asylum seekers open accounts and. You know, it was really hard, even sort of basic documentation from the Home Office, which they would use as a kind of, you know, as part of their ID. You know, the Home Office would get the order of their names wrong because they're just different names, they're not used to it. And, and it wouldn't match their passport and the bank's so sorry, you know. So you'd then write to the Home Office, who then would send you a document, well, they whenever, you know, might not actually get the document, so in some cases we didn't. And so seeing something like this, where actually, you know, there's a, there's a kind of tech firm working with government, working with kind of um, the police and others to kind of create a process for helping people open bank accounts, helping people with their identity is really, really brilliant. And I think the thing that strikes me through this is that there is no reason why in a country like the UK we couldn't be expanding this if it's possible for those different organisations to work together to help um, new migrants or asylum seekers who are coming into the country get ID, then actually it should be the same for ex-prisoners who really struggle. Mm -hmm. It should be the same for people on benefits who are in temporary housing. Um, it shouldn't be as complicated as we seem to be making it. So I was like, great, let's expand it. Where can we go next? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I think the... Um the migrant story is topical and tends to get the headlines, but actually, it, financial inclusion—you um, know, not being able to get a bank account—is is a huge issue for swathes of society that haven't migrated. And actually, you know, probably it goes back to the Brexit story. People focus on the migrants um, so much, and they become almost demonised because it, it appears outwardly like they're the only ones that anybody's trying to help. When the reality is that's clearly not true. And an organisation like this is, is generally, I think, trying to financially include a whole bunch. Yeah. And, and and again, the process point you make is a really interesting one. You know, it's not computer says no; it's like our process says no. Ordering of names different to passport. Oh, your process says no. Spit Can I it out. Say that I had trouble opening a new bank account to do with a mortgage because they they missed my last name or something. And it's like, well, I've had a bank account in the UK since I was seventeen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's you know, it's just. And this is what I mean about processes. Like bad data, bad data in different places through old processes, um, and somebody going, "Oh, this doesn't match that," then the answer is no. Whereas actually, you could start to pull sources from more sources of data. You could go back to the customer in real time and say, "Oh, we've appeared something's wrong. Could you go get some more evidence from somewhere else, please?" Yeah, okay. Well, I'll link you to DVLA. Yeah, but then you, you you get back to the underlying problem of identity. You know, uh, and then you look to places like India with Adar, you know, where um, they got, you know, in four years, uh, essentially registered 750 million people. So it's That's, digital ideas. Uh, digital ideas. It comes back to, isn't it? It's is actually what they're able to do is that they uh, linked a biometric police record to their identity. So they kind of took fingerprints and stuff. And it's, it's about digital ID being stored in a place that's sort of safe and desirable that uh, the banks can use. I don't but the, think but it's necessarily that you have to have an official digital ID. We do so much of our lives online at the moment. Um, you can generally tell, and I'm pretty sure there's uh, startups working on this in terms of credit scoring based mm. on your activity on social media. Mm. Um, it is a much better barometer than official documentation that's quite good for authentication but it's the very kind of the starting identity so mm. authenticating is quite good so when you kind of have to re 
we go in, you can kind of have a picture or you can say, well, actually, for credit scoring, there's lots of... But when it's when you've got to kind of ID somebody, I don't know, I think it's... The definition it's of identity is really important there to understand yeah. that debate because the definition of identity is a government giving you a document and saying, your faith, your Lindsay, it's, it's, it's where they point at you. Here is your thing that proves you are you. That the, A government actually gives you your identity. You never had it before. Until you get a birth certificate, you actually don't exist. You're not a person, um, which is quite an interesting idea. But, but I think that, that that goes against this underlying, um, I would say it's not a trend, but a, a zeitgeist, something that's a feeling across the country that goes against ID cards, that goes against the national ID scheme. You know, in some ways, there's this there's this thing of whoa. Well, you know, if you you register everyone, that's a fascist move. You yeah. know, I want my freedom and to be anonymous. But on the other hand, everyone having an identity would make a lot of you know digital well, things. I think also people do have identities. I suppose that's the thing. Is that in the end, they you know the, the government we might not want the government to do it, but actually financial services companies are just going to end up doing it on behalf of government, and government will just pull in data from financial services companies like they do already, yeah. just hard copies. I'm, we want statements of so and so. Well, okay, we'll provide these statements from this yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it already happens. For a number of years, I've been saying identity is the problem in banking, and it's probably the problem in terrorism. It's the problem. In politi- it's like the problem. Uh, it's, I think it is the biggest problem because it, it is. It really is. Wow. Uh, who am I? Yeah. Who are you? <laughs> so there's this movement now towards um, self-sovereign identity. Um, one of the UN development um, goals, I think, for 2020 and 2030, is the idea to try and give everybody a self-sovereign identity who can't get a government-issued identity. And the idea of self-sovereign identity is if no government identity you, you are still a person with legal rights and obligations. So how do you solve that problem? And it's something they're actively working towards. So if I'm a migrant coming from a country where I never had a passport, never would have a passport, I would still have a track record of at the point at which I was born and I was probably vaccinated, somebody took a photo of my face and I, I now exist and a, a data about me can be collected in some way. But then who manages that data for the world? Like there, there are a lot of governance questions to your point. It's very politically non-palatable to have a centralized database for these things which with my blockchain happen kind of comes to the rescue it does allow MPs to kind of extradite people not caring where they go I mean it's a big political thing isn't it we don't want you in our country we're going to extradite you but it's like you don't have a country to go to doesn't matter you've got this new self-sovereign place <laughs> yeah. that's nebulous you haven't got any rights apart from these ones that well they should talk to Elon Musk and go to Mars <laughs> it's really interesting that it's um, it's financial services pushing this forward and this kind of thing really I think this story is really a great example of like this dream that you know people who are interested in fintech have of like it's gonna change the world and serve the underbanked um but it is you know you've, you, the, the smartphone is basically the only reason this is happening um or you, you know you've got to think all the massive um you know more people in um, i think asia are more likely to have um or certain countries in asia are more likely to have a smartphone than they are a bank account so they have a smartphone and you do banking on the phone mm-hmm. you can therefore serve them but it's making them exist in this economy through finance more than anything I don't know if that's I mean it's good to get people into the economy and, and, and give them an identity based on this um, just shows the power of it really doesn't it? you do need that identity to, to make a a huge huge difference I think um, the, the last story we had up is um, really um, a few weeks old actually it's one on euro money that says um, financial inclusion is changing the face of banking um, which I, I don't know if I agree with the, the, the outward statement there I think I'd probably rephrase it to financial inclusion could change the face of banking but I don't know that it has faith do you have any views on this 
Well, on the title, I guess um, it depends where you're talking about banking, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in some countries, it is changing the face of banking because actually there's huge unpopulated, you know, unbanked population who are now becoming banked. So actually in certain populations it is changing things quite drastically. So they've got lots of different international examples, haven't they, of, of where kind of, you know, people have been able to, to start businesses and, you know, create jobs and and sort of floating branches, all of that sort of stuff. So actually in some senses, you know, financial inclusion is there's there's kind of great swathes of, of the world which have not been served before, which are which are now. Um, I think it's just it's difficult when you sit in the UK where, you know, Financial exclusion sort of accounts for about 1.5 million people, 660,000 households. It kind of, you think, well, actually, financial inclusion doesn't really change our world. But in other parts, it's obviously quite dramatic. Yeah, the the percentage of people who aren't financially included in some parts of the world is, is much, much higher. Okay, um, I, with that, we're going to throw to our sponsor and we'll come back with an interview with Faith. Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. And thank you very much to our sponsor. So still with us, we have Faith Reynolds and and Lindsay Barber still. And Faith, we wanted to take the opportunity to learn a little bit more about you since you've uh, kindly joined us today. So who are you and what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) What's my identity? Sounds like speed dating. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not very good at speedy responses to the question. I do a mixture of things. So I work part-time and flexibly. I live in Devon, three kids and a dog and a husband. So that takes a little bit of my time up. But um, I also work um, for the Financial Services Consumer Panel, which is one of the statutory panels that advises the FCA on consumer interest and regulation. So you're the regulator of the regulator. <laughs> you're like the, the super regulator. Not, not quite. Though. We do sit within their kind of governance and accountability framework. But, um, but there are four panels, you know, so okay. we're just the one that focuses on consumers. And so that's sort of, I've done a mix of stuff on that. I've been doing that for five years and that's just a real range of things. So a really wide portfolio of stuff and I've done things on enforcement and redress and led some of the work on there. Access and vulnerability and more recently I've kind of, you know, looking at technology and innovation. So um, a lot about kind of consumer people, regulation, financial services. And I also joined the Payment Strategy Forum uh, a year ago. And the Payment Strategy Forum is it's kind of industry, consumer mixture of people, a forum of people who come together under the auspices of the Payment Systems Regulator to develop uh, the kind of the strategy for collaborative industry activity in payments. So it's sort of like the plumbing of payment systems yeah, and so looking at the strategy for that so where in the collaborative space where we need to where the industry has to work together what is it going to do and how so if you look at things like PayM or CAS or fast payments all of those things had to be kind of put together in a strategy had to be a, you know had to be thought through and the industry had to collaborate to deliver it so we're looking at what next so how does that fit in with the payments sort of systems regulator so um, the the forum uh, is is an industry body, um, but it's set up by the payment systems regulator. The regulator, after kind of lots of failed approaches at sort of self self regulation in payments, the payment systems regulator is set up, and um, and it, in in 
it sort of one of the first things it did was set up the forum saying okay you need a strategy and you need to decide what you're going to do if you won't tell us then we will we will step in so obviously everybody kind of gets together and goes all right okay <laughs> yep, we're going to do it but it's you know it's the first of its kind so it's actually it's not just industry it's not just the incumbents it's the fintechs it's the challengers consumer representatives corporate you know the, the retail side corporates coming alongside as well so um and and so we have kind of had a draft strategy go out and um, are now looking at kind of finalising that for, for publication in November. Very nice. Um, so tell us a little bit more about some of the work that goes on inside the Payment Strategy Forum. Like what kind of things would it do? So when we first set up, we kind of created some objectives and then looked at creating working groups which looked at different areas. So one worked on financial crime, one on um, simplifying access to the market. So there's a big kind of space where you have direct and indirect access. And so it's looking at simplifying all of that. It's a very costly process. And also looking at what do the what's the end user needs and what do people actually want mm-hmm. from payments, uh, and then a group which was sort of looking at the horizon. So what's on what's on the horizon? What is the tech coming? And those sort of groups all kind of merged, and we've now sort of one of the, the key planks of the strategy is around a simplified payments platform. Mm-hmm. So there's a new payments architecture. So it's looking at um, you know there are other kind of strands to the to the work you know. To encourage you to go and read the strategy, um, but uh, but it's a kind of a particularly interesting one because it sort of says actually how could we re envisage payment systems, and so it's moving from a structure where we've had sort of individual payment system operators who deliver a specific product like a direct debit or a check, and it's sort of saying actually what's where you know we've had to work together, we've had to collaborate, it's been de- you know designed, it's, it's kind of come about organically, it's created some kind of problems, if you like, are the way it's sort of worked out with direct and indirect access. How do we address all of those problems and create something that's responsive to users, versatile, efficient? And so the Simplified Payments Platform is a go at that. And it's about sort of transitioning very kind of, you know, safely and securely and sensibly to a kind of a new payment system where you, you have a simple push payment is the kind of core basic of it. And, and then you kind of have a layered architecture, you move to common messaging standards, so using ISO 222, which allows more kind of data to flow with payments, and kind of building it with open IPIs, so that actually when you want to make a change to part of the payment system, instead of having everybody to agree the change and kind of plan it in advance and collaborate, actually you can take it out, change it and stick it back in, a bit, you know, a bit like a jigsaw piece, without it kind of ruining everything else. So yeah, so there's a kind of whole piece there. Um, but one of the really interesting things is around how it kind of allows innovation. So you mentioned um, looking at what what do people want from a payment system? What do people want from a payment system? So um, the strategy forum set, set out at the beginning, so it had a wider community. So there's been lots of people involved through working groups. Also, people have come to events and roundtables on the way and sort of followed the journey. And it set out with a kind of list of problems. And one of the key, there's a, a few key things that came up. People wanted more control they want more assurance that actually when they make a payment, it's going to the, to the right place. And they wanted to, to, to be able to reconcile you know, invoices and stuff like that much more, more quickly. So um, one, of the, one of the interesting spaces around this idea of a, a feature on payments that allows you to kind of accept, reject or postpone the payment. So we call it request to pay. Mm-hmm. And um, but it's really interesting because it's kind of like how what's the best way of delivering that? It's mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm in my head all the time we've kind of got do we need a big change on a payments platform or actually we went to PSD yeah this is an overlay service this is PSD2 actually a TPP could probably deliver some kind of 
you know, consent for a payment to go out of my account. So it's all very interesting, but it some of it, just sort of thinking about the financial inclusion article that we were looking at earlier, relates to actually how do we help those people on the lowest incomes kind of control payments? One of the reasons that people don't access or don't use the facilities of bank accounts that they might have access to is because of their inability to control the flow of money. That's interesting. So it's worth considering that, you know, you made an interesting point in, in an earlier answer that the payment systems have kind of evolved over many, many years. And now you've got the, they don't really talk to each other. They're a bit inefficient. And we, you know, the UK is considered by many to have like a world class payment system. But actually, there, from the sounds of it there, there are people who are not getting good value from it. There are people who are having money taken out of their account that they're not in control of. Is there other ways that you can make them feel more in control simply by changing the architecture of it? Or are there things that um, other organizations need to do as well? And, and how can people get involved in that? Yeah, so it's a real mix. I mean, I say there are lots of people talking together. I think it's just there is a kind of, to get me wrong, there's, there's inefficiencies, but it's a historic thing. There are, you know, obviously. But there is, I guess, you know, how do we make something like giving people control over their, their payments? I mean, one thing is, you know, continuous payment authorities are in the backside because there's a lack of transparency and you don't know when they're going to hit your account. So, so for our listeners, just yeah. define a continuous payment so authority. So that would be, um, so it, to all purpose, you know, to all intents and purposes from a consumer point of view, it looks like you've filled out a direct debit form, except that there's no guarantee and actually you're giving somebody else permission to take uh, money from your account. So a pool payment, but you're giving them authority to do that, but over a and a continuous period of time. And the amount of money that they take may go up or down. Exactly. So they so, could take £5 this month and next month you might get a really big phone bill for yeah, hundreds of pounds. That's right. And they can take it when they want. So this is a particular issue in payday lending. If, if you're kind of aware of that sector where payday lenders were kind of saying, right, you owe us this money, you've set up a continuous payment authority, we're just going to keep hitting your account until we get the money we want, which kind of is was a bit sort of naughty. So that the regulator said, okay, only two CPAs and then you kind of have to you have to wait so that whole issue of actually you know do I know when money's coming out of my account can I see that on my statement can I see what it's for all of those sort of questions have come up and so there's sort of stuff that actually on the supply side you can do is just sort of you know don't design products like that mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of basic kind of stuff <laughs> sorry you know just make payments <coughs> transparent and give people control in the moment but there's also other you know with something like request to pay it is a broader thing because the issue for, that kind of comes up often with direct debits, for instance, is if you're on a, a low or unstable income and, you know, you, you want to take advantage of the reduced cost of bill payment that you get. So you're incentivized to use direct debits because it's cheaper for utility payments to, to issue. So therefore, they drop your bill down. So you want to use that facility. But actually, if you've got a low or kind of unstable income, you don't have the money in your account. So it kind of creates charges and causes problems. And so you don't use it. And so actually you just use cash. And, you know, I'm still, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day and helping her out, went down to the co-op, put cash on her keys for gas and electricity. It's still happening, you know, and she got money out of an envelope to do that for me. She's, you know, she's got a bank account. But there's this issue of kind of uh, security control. Can I make the most of my money? And so there's this poverty premium that people talk about in the UK is that, you know, it can cost you just over a thousand pounds extra if you're not using facilities. Wow. So this request to pay is the idea is if you had a feature like that on something like a direct debit, you could actually say, hang on a minute, the money's not coming to my account yet. So no, you can't have it, but you can have it in 10 days time because I know that's when I'm going to get paid. So it's that kind of feature. 
But, but I guess you know that leads to questions about where these features need to be. Do they need to be buried deep in the architecture, or can they be actually through that you know that that back for to yeah. a better phrase? You know, I just spent the last few years you know working specifically around these kinds of problems around, yeah. around how you connect people with their money in real time, how you really uh, you know get away from that uh, that place where people just don't know sort of day to day month to month where they are or you know three weeks after payday you know how much money have I got in my account is this a good month or a bad month there's there's yeah. just a lot there that I think you know new challenges and, and new services will will provide uh, provide yeah. capabilities for uh, I guess I'm interested in what uh, additional architecture you know would come along that makes that easier because this request to pay sounds you know because uh, yeah. one thing we would we uh, talked about before is about you know if you've got a gym direct debit and a electricity bill and a mobile phone bill and a mortgage payment all coming out and there's only a bit of money left in your account how do you schedule those which which one of those do you really want me to pay and which one do you want me to leave or, yeah. or to bounce and actually bouncing a payment you know doesn't have to cost anything in terms of just saying you know no it's just one of those charges that have just been added on of oh well that's an administrative charge you know we're we're going to charge you for what well, what administration, you know? Yeah. So I think there's there's interesting questions as to how that comes at the whether by the service provider or what architecture needs to change behind the scenes that faster payments or direct debits yeah. will provide. And I think that's I think that's a thing. Is it actually is at the moment? You know, I think that the, the forum's still working through actually what 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 do we mean? What do we need? And I and for me, my sort of a, as a kind of independent person, my question is actually, does it need to be a system? thing that we require does it need to be a full overlay service on an our payments architecture or actually can we just do this with TPP's PSD2 now the, the kind of the, the simplified payments platform makes that much easier to do so that's the kind of that, that I'm sure there's some other technical things it does but I don't go that far I'm a consumer person so <laughs> but there's a but it does it does facilitate much more of that and it, it kind of allows that transfer of data as well I mean I think the other thing that's quite interesting about how some of this fits with open banking in PSD2 is we're talking about sort of enhanced data so sending additional information with payments so you want to send an invoice you want to part you want your VAT to pay off here you want to so pay straight to the HMRC you want to pay the the um, provider or whatever the supplier straight off here and you can provide you know you provide this additional information with the payment and I was talking to uh, one of the people I was saying well, actually if, if you're making kind of if you're sending invoice information through with a payment would you be required to make that available as open data as part of my transaction data through mm. open banking? And I guess the answer is probably yes. So that makes, there's, there's just this sudden world of additional data that comes on board. And you kind of start yeah. thinking, actually, there's lots of new ways that, that people might be able to make payments much quicker. If you start thinking about how does this have an impact on tax credits or childcare tax credits and all that kind of complication when you get childcare and you have to kind of make a payment and then get the tax office to pay you back and your receipts and then the provider has to, to, to make payment as well and it has to be verified. I mean, all of that could be much Massively more simplified. Yes. Yeah, and surely this is um, services that banks, if they were you know, kind of getting ahead of them, this game, could be offering to local authorities, they could be offering it to the governments and so on. And yeah. So to kind of package all of this together, we know we're going to be pumping out this data, but why don't we... And it's also an opportunity for the market. You know, the, the startups like Zero that are out there will probably build some kind of interesting plugins for all of this kind of stuff. It's it's interesting that you, you make that point there. This new data will become available 
global, this change is looks like it's coming and it's inevitable. So, you know, what are the opportunities there for fintech startups? But even just putting the architecture in place that allows companies to do that, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a million miles away from an 18 character identifier to to find out, what, you know, what was that payment? Where did it go? Yeah. Um, to to be able to have a, a virtual receipt with a, you know rich data attached. Not everyone would use it, but those who did, you know, yeah. it would start to start yeah. to be interesting. I think. I mean, there's big, there's big kind of. Um, if you look at SMEs and liquidity, if you can, if you can do things like part payment, or if you can reconcile much quicker, that does kind of create more liquidity. Um, the question is, do you know some of the the big providers will be relying on making money from providing <laughs> that liquidity yeah. at a cost. <laughs> and so is there, you know, there's what's the incentive around around that side to actually provide those services uh, because they can make money from offering credit in the meantime. So there's a kind of, you know, it's, there's lots of opportunity, I think, for, you know, challenges for, for fintech. And it's just, it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it lands. I think I kind of, you know, I have this sort of exciting view of, you know, payments I'm a bit in that kind of, yes, it could save the world. <laughs> but, you know, but kind of also aware that actually it's quite a slow, clunky process and could just end up being really complex, uh, and, you know, inefficient. But I think, uh, I mean, my, my take on the kind of PSD2 open banking thing is that actually it provides air cover for new entrants and, you know, essentially people who really want to, to shake up the industry mm-hmm. to do that. It's because I think a lot of people looked at it uh, in terms of open banking or the big five are going to be slow and, you know, are going to potentially only do what they need to do in order to deliver it. But I think there's there's really interesting opportunities. And my question is, will market forces push open banking better than, you know, regulation and, you know, the slow pondering big banks? I think that some of those slow pondering big banks are actually seeing opportunity here. So I'm okay. sure they'll be as slow pondering as we, as we think they might. I'm holding out that actually some of them are going to deliver quite well on this stuff and are starting to think about things differently. I think there's just this, there's a, there is definitely a big kind of, you know, a new range of intermediary that can come in here and, and change the way we manage our finances. But not just that. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things about sort of financial inclusion is whether data inclusion is now the next big thing. If I'm if I'm not willing to share, will I have access to those services which are cheaper? Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not willing to share, will I still be able to get a product? You know, is there going to be product exclu- you know, exclusion around that? So just in terms of thinking about financial inclusion, there's data inclusion. And I think there are lots of innovators. It's not just fintechs that can come into this space. There are others who've been working on privacy and data and you know, how do we make sure we keep people's data private and then you only share what you want to share? Well, they've been doing that for a while in other sectors and we could be getting to see them saying, actually, well, great, transactional banking, transactional information that just adds to the other sorts of data that we had access to, whether that's your, you know, your health data, your energy usage, all of those sorts of things. And so the products, I think, could really, could really change. Is there an explanation thing that needs to happen here? Because you know, permissioning around, will you give your data to this third-party service? I often find that um, if you explain things in certain ways, it can scare people. So Android, I'm a big Android user, as Jason knows. Uh, but it does ask you for every permission under the sun. Would you like Facebook to ask, access your device's camera? Ooh, that gives you access to my camera whenever you want it. Well, yeah, but also if you want to take a photo using Facebook, you kind of have to give it permission. So like sometimes asking for too much permission can actually prevent the behavior you were trying to create in the first place. So how, how do you think you balance that? Is that within scope, really thinking that through? I think it's, I mean, you know, there are, there are 
organisation like FData who've been saying, actually, you know, we need a public awareness campaign here. We need more awareness of what's coming and how people can manage that. Um, I think it's interesting that um, Barclays did some research with Ipsos Mori, which showed that actually there was, you know, a, a third of people were kind of happy to share their data, a third of people were not happy to share their data, and a third of people were just like, oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but actually, the, the research showed that when the proposition's good enough, people will share. Yeah. I think if you buy five minutes of convenience for most people, most Absolutely. people would, would be more than happy to press the button and take my data so I don't have to fill this form. And that's it's interesting because it kind of goes back to this question of request to pay. So mm-hmm. how do you make that work in reality? You say, well, actually, every time there's a payment that comes through to your account, we'll ask you whether you want to do it on an SMS. And you've got to go, hang on a minute, I've got a lot of payments. I'm not sure I want that many SMS <laughs> coming through. And there's this balance between control on the one hand, I need control, and convenience on the other hand. And I just sort of think there's this little bit of a seesaw where it's, it's quite tricky in terms of, you know, what's the right product? And I, I almost see kind of different people coming at different angles saying, well, actually, I'll give up my privacy if it means I get access. Or I'll give up some, you know, control in order to get convenience, and it's that's that's quite an interesting. And this is kind of my worry because I, I, you know, the the challenger banks and the people focusing on user experience that would design around that, I think, would design wonderful experiences. But no matter how innovative a, a bank can be, they've still got that death grip of, of committees, whereby somebody somewhere will say, oh, but have you made them aware of this small article of something legislation over here? And if, have, have you made them, and is this data excessive? And there'll be some big internal debate inside a bank that will water down those user experiences. And, and uh, you know, if people haven't switched away from the large banks to use this service, will they actually get their value from it? I think there's, there's a, there's a tough question I mean, to play with. You can't legislate for that. No, you can't. I mean, I think the the thing that, you know, we we need to see in all of this, and I don't think it, I think it will just apply as much to fintechs and challenges as it applies to banks, is actually, you know, how do we make terms and conditions meaningful? How yeah. do we make our contract kind of like show that we've got integrity? How can we communicate this stuff to people well? Because actually... In some senses, there's a whole legal profession that, you know, there's lots of people who want to do good stuff. But actually, you know, I'm sure when you've been through the authorisation process, I mean, I don't know if you've faced any challenges along the way, but, <laughs> but, yeah, but you know, things like, you know, can you show that you have kind of thought about who your product's for? Have you appropriately targeted your product? What happens when they get into financial difficulties? What have you thought through on that? So all of those things create, okay, we have to think this through. We have to create a, you know, a, a framework by which we can tell people, if you get into financial difficulty, this is what we will do. Mm-hmm. And so it's there in, in many senses, but it's just how do we how do we make the good stuff meaningful and how do we get rid of stuff that's just not necessary? Because some of it feels like backside covering, right? There's, if I put in a lot of legal pros that technically hits all of the right marks that it needs to hit um, it doesn't matter so much if the consumer understands it and that feels it doesn't even matter if that's the experience they have it's yeah. just we've covered ourselves and I yeah. think it's trying to get that balance between the spirit of this we want you know consumers to have a good experience with a trustworthy organisation that does the right thing yeah. and actually that's really hard to kind of define in, yes. in, and it's really hard to prove um, but at the moment we have you know masses and masses of paper so I guess in moving from the ethereal to the kind of concrete, yeah. you know, what will we seek in the roadmap for payment systems and PST2 and everything else? Well, what will we see? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, 
mean, I guess I've covered off some of those things already, but um, I, I expect we won't see a great deal very quickly, actually. That's the, probably the reality. I think uh-huh. we're we're looking at kind of slow and then perhaps more of a hockey stick approach, you know, where you see some adoption and it should hopefully fly. But it's going to be a little while. I mean, I'm holding out some decent account information services to kind of do personal financial management on big, big scale, you know, that's going to, um, that's going to sort of take my data in. We, potentially that will, you'll see companies using APIs to kind of provide that sort of financial advice, the robo-advice side of things. Also, the energy, energy usage, how can we help you switch, but then health data. You know, my phone collects health data on me. Mm-hmm. You know, and people love their Fitbits, although I'm not quite sure why. It's like, <laughs> just a reminder I haven't done but it. But isn't that strange? Your sleep, your sleep patterns also. Like, people, people love giving their Fitbit information or their sleep pattern information to their phone, which means Google or Apple are probably getting it. But they're not happy with somebody seeing their NHS data from an insurance company. There's this real, um, like, my NHS data is my NHS data. Does this? So, but what's the sort of Google and Amazon start asking? You know, offering health you know health insurance that's the, that's the kind of space isn't it you start I, I, I feel there's a lot of blurring of different industries that, yeah. that come in here actually we're much there's this question about what does a data driven economy look like and how do we kind of how do we manage in that, that new setting so I think what I see is just sort of much more moving to kind of data driven analytics that could have impact on kind of car insurance health insurance you know there's a whole thing around transparency and insurance generally but um, you know separate discussion um, but there's that you know, I, I get excited about open banking, and um, I think it could be the thing that pushes the data-driven economy more than energy usage, for mm-hmm. instance. I think it's the transactional stuff that really push things. To well, there's so much richness potentially inside it's what did somebody buy. Uh, there's, if you think about the amount of money that. Um, Google and Facebook and others make from potentially creating demand in the economy around advertising, but it, it sort of gets broken. It's like, we're going to create the demand, we're going to take you to the website, you're going to click, buy, and then the whole service is broken and we don't know if you ever actually bought the thing. Well, that's going to change now, isn't yes. it? Because it's all about kind of actually, can you, is there, you know, platforms, I think like CA management and, and I know sort of think other platforms as well, but um, just looking at, you know, how do we connect somebody who wants to buy a green jumper with somebody who's selling a green jumper mm-hmm. and you know it's a pay you know actually I'm going to trade my data can I trade my email and then you'll give me access to the thing that I want to look at and you'll provide me with a voucher which I can then trade with somebody else and you know people like um you know Chris Gledhill at Seco they're looking at you know alternative exchanges of value you know actually is there is that is there a space for that as well so but the kind of the marketing issue I think is is beginning to change actually well I don't know I don't know enough about marketing but I like to think it's you know there's this there's a space certainly people are trying it what's the what's the value of your attention versus value of your data around preferences indeed so on that note we'll uh, we'll say thank you very much for joining us Faith thank uh, you and uh, we're now going to throw to an interview recorded uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Costa Perrick from the Gates Foundation Thanks very much to our sponsors for those messages. So today we're sitting down with Costa Perrick. So Costa, you're the Deputy Director of Financial Services for the Poor at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is both an amazing title and probably one you find it very difficult to put on business cards, I imagine, given yes. the uh, given the length of it. <laughs> the length, yes. We'd love to hear a lot more about um, the good work that you guys are doing at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But maybe before we get into that, we can learn a little bit more about you. This doesn't want to start sounding too much like the this is your life kind of introduction in terms of we've been digging into your past. But actually, your your, your background and actually the places that you worked with, with Swift, etc., is yeah. really interesting. So tell us a little bit more about where you're from and uh, what sort of happened to get you here? Yeah, in terms of uh, my career, I've 
spent most of my time uh, at Swift, 20 plus years, in fact, mostly on the technology side. But, you know, after 20 years, I pretty much did everything at Swift except HR, I think. But, <laughs> but it was uh, the nice thing is that I could do a lot. I'm a technologist. Uh, by by nature, by interest, by formation, I have a computer science degree. Uh, so always focused on technology. The Swift experience has taught me financial technology and scalable systems, hugely uh, uh, secure, scalable systems. And then all my career at Swift and then later here at Gates Foundation has been about innovation as well. So how can we change the way we do things to make them better, faster, using new technologies? And so at Swift, I was always kind of R&D, advanced development. I contributed to uh, Swift. Swift was a huge part of the CLS project here in London back in 2002. So I was there on the program side of Swift. After that, there was the whole redesign of the Swift network, uh, where I ended up being the chief architect, uh, essentially holding the whole system from X25 proprietary to IP, XML, PKI security, and rolling that out to, to uh, essentially 10,000 banks who are users of Swift. And then the interesting thing that happened was that when, at a particular change of CEOs, the new CEO said to me, well, you have been always on the innovation side, we need to do better. He said, I want Swift to be a, a much more innovative, go figure it out. And uh, that sounds like a quite a fun challenge to, the, it, to was a, I, it was a bit overwhelming to be honest at the beginning because uh, it was like, whoa, <laughs> what is <laughs> what, what, what's happening? What can we do? But very quickly, I latched onto some of the key concepts where which still are very important in my uh, belief system today. One is open innovation, uh, so the deep belief that. It's not in your product management or marketing that you will find new ideas. You will find them at your clients, at your competitors, at your partners, and all ideas are good ones. The second key notion, I call it intrapreneurship. So every company, they do have innovation, innovative-minded people, the trick is to spot them and give them give them uh, the runway. And then, of course, the last key belief system is really that failure is an option, that in order to innovate, there is no way but to try, experiment, and then see what works. Uh, and it's okay to, if an experiment doesn't work. So, so this, that's what InnoTribe basically became at Swift was this notion of a sandbox, uh, which is a term now, I think, I'm quite pleased that the term is used throughout, <laughs> even recently uh, at the regulators, this notion of, hey, let's provide a space for these intrapreneurs to try things in a risk-free environment, let's see what works, and then based on that, double down on what works, 
etc. So that's, and Inno Tribe is still quite successful today, which I'm happy to, to see, which yeah. is great. And, in, and obviously you, yeah. you believe this so much, you wrote a book kind of around the context right. of it. So exactly, you know, the, exactly. And like you say, the, the castle in the sandbox for, yeah. for anybody who, who hasn't read it really should, because it, it's a kind of a forerunner for not only what people like the FCA have been doing, but actually a lot of the, uh, the thinking that we see coming out of innovation departments in banking. So it's, uh, you know, really a, a handbook for those people trying to change their organization. Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a explanation of these deep beliefs I just mentioned, but also some pragmatic experience. I try to be, the book tries to be a cookbook for, for people essentially like myself who got into this place where they said change the mindset of the company hopefully that's a help for for such in terms of changing mindset so i remember being working for a company in 2009 and i just gotten into twitter um, and i think in 2010 when i'd been working for them for some time i wasn't enjoying the job but they were in finance and i was on twitter and they i kept seeing this thing called hashtag InnoTribe everywhere yeah, and i was yeah. like what is this InnoTribe thing <laughs> yeah. and i clicked on the hashtag and i see all of these people like dave birch and chris skinner you know yeah, terrible yeah. humans terrible uh, <laughs> having what looked to be like some of the best debates I've ever seen about finance. And so that was, for me, the gateway drug into fintech. And now we sit here, you know, five, six years later, and, and here I am fully into fintech. So I think there's been a lot of people who, you know, Inner Tribe was really the first of its kind. You know, you were doing it before it was cool, before it was a thing. I'm quite humbled that you're saying this, Simon, so that you were inspired by this. But it was, it was an inspiring journey, I think. Uh, it still is. And then what happened is that one of the in, one of the topics in InnoTribe became uh, financial inclusion and mobile payments, and the the member banks of SWIFT were kind of uncomfortable with this notion. What what is it? What do we do about it? Uh, what do we need to do? And so we started exploring that, and then um, my the, when we. St- when you start exploring such things, you start building your networks. Eventually, the networks reached to the Gates Foundation, the financial services for the poor people uh, at Gates. And eventually, they asked me to come over and do that full time. And I figured, well, that, that's a good opportunity. And let's, let's uh, kind of double down in my own experiment. Let's de- double down on this topic. And here I am, three years later. That's, that's awesome. We were, um, you know, we were having a discussion earlier on about uh, with somebody about blockchain, and you know, Simon yeah. made a comment. It's great when the thing that you're really, really interested in then becomes the job that you're doing. And uh, it sounds yeah. like you've you followed a similar curve in that as well. That's right. That's right. When the interesting thing that happened when I joined Gates is that, so I was coming from essentially the incumbent sector, the banks, the high-value payments. Uh, but the main topic was totally different, was the unbanked people in uh, developing countries. And so it was a very, very interesting learning experience for me to bring the, the concepts I know well about and then apply them to a new domain. Mm-hmm. And in the process of doing that, I built up a team uh, slowly but surely, and and uh, we developed what we now call the Level 1 project, which is this vision of what is financially inclusive digital payment platform, and, and what it is at the end of the day 
from the perspective of the people using it is simply the capacity to send money the way you send a text message. It's as simple as and as powerful as that. And uh, that's what uh, we are ho hoping and helping to foster in countries uh, where we work, Africa, South Asia. That's interesting. So it might be worth just stepping back then and explaining a little bit about kind of the, the role you've taken on in terms yeah. of, you know, what are the goals of, of the Gates Foundation and especially the yeah. project for, for the poor there? The Gates Foundation, so let me just position this briefly. Um, so the financial services for the poor is one among, one strategy, as we call them, among 27. And uh, most of them are focused on health issues or agriculture, sanitation, vaccine. Uh, but one of the, the reasons for existence of FSP, as we call by abbreviation, because it's quite long, <laughs> um, is um, that we have ample evidence that being having access to an adequate financial system actually helps uh, in alleviating poverty uh, on the one hand and also uh, absorbing shocks. The, the life uh, of the poor people are driven by events uh, such as, on the good side of things, harvests, marriages, but also uh, much more difficult things such as droughts, deaths in the family, and so the capacity to absorb shocks is amplified by, it's better managed by having access to a financial account where you can, for safety purposes, not have all that, the cash with you on the one hand. Second allows, as we know, better planning. It, it, it is a very humbling experience to learn and live the experience for yourself because it is expensive to be poor. It's terrible to say, but it's, it is true. It is expensive to be poor because everything is expensive. If you want to send money home I, as a migrant worker, well, if, without a digital financial system, well, you have to send, give it to some bus driver who will go to your village. And of course, that is a service that you have to pay. Mm. And we have seen such thing as such things as a child can go to school today because the school fee hasn't haven't been paid it's terrible so so all of that we know with very extensive data points that uh, that giving access to a financial system does help now of course i use the word adequate system. And that is the key, of course, in this, is what is adequate. Well, first of all, it's pretty easy to see what is not adequate, which is that if somebody has to walk 10 miles to get to the bank branch to be able to do any transaction, well, obviously, that's not adequate. If you, if you have to pay a bus driver to, to ship some cash, it's not adequate. So, what is actually adequate, and that is the huge technology enabler, is the availability of GSM signal and mobile phones. In all of the countries where we work, in Africa and South Asia, we can see 
in excess of 85% mobile signal penetration, even in the rural, rural areas. And people have, most of them today have what we call the feature phone, simple phones that have call and text capability, but these tools are actually adequate mm. uh, to do, to, to conduct some basic uh, financial systems. And we know, of course, the story of M-Pesa in Kenya. There is a less known, perhaps, story in Bangladesh with the system called Bcash, which is quite successful, uh, also driven by the need to send salary home for, for, for migrant workers. So we know that this can work and this can be hugely helpful. So the second piece which has to do not with the users but with the infrastructure, when what is an adequate infrastructure? Well, an adequate infrastructure is the one that can reach to the people and that means almost by mathematical construction that you need an interoperable system of financial service providers of many sorts, traditional banks, but also non-banks in some cases or different players who actually have the distribution mechanism uh, that reaches the poor people. And then you need to federate this into a system that is real-time, immediate re uh, uh, transfer of funds, because it wouldn't do, it has to replace cash. So if I'm at a merchant, it has to be the same effect that if I hand ca cash over. So it has to be uh, immediate transfer of funds. It has to be non-repudiable. All of the te techno technical uh, uh, characteristics of cash, but in a digital form. And then finally, another, the last word, adequate definition of the word adequate applies to the regulators because it is about money therefore it's got to be regulated and therefore it has to be has the characteristic of fraud management and resilience that is needed so all of this together all of this adequacy is what we have tried to describe and that we now call level one project it, describes this vision of what is an interoperable, low-value, real-time retail platform that works for poor people and that can actually make money for the providers because that's the other uh, important of this. This is not about CSR. I always say, if it is about CSR, don't come to us. We, we are not in that. This is about... Uh, making sustainable systems over time that can serve the poor, but also make money for the providers. Mm -hmm. So I think you make some really interesting points, especially on around regulation and all those points about adequacy. You can get an adequate way of moving value between each other and an adequate infrastructure, but if the regulation doesn't allow for it, and, and if the regulation insists that actually somebody has to walk the 10 miles to the branch before they can take to use their mobile phone to do anything. The whole thing's pointless. So you, yeah. I think there's a position that the Gates Foundation plays there around kind of leaning uh, its influence into helping people understand that if you change those regulations or if you're open-minded to them, you could actually 
for create better outcomes for people. And I think that's that's really powerful. And and the second point that I think is super powerful is this idea that um, my own experience in my own career is the projects that come up around financial inclusion are, well, this is a nice thing, we should tick it, tick it in a box, but actually people aren't seeing an opportunity for hundreds of millions of new customers and a new distribution model. And that distribution model piece is, is so interesting because yeah. the people that would be in front of you when you live in a village are very different to the people you'd see in a branch you know, and, and the, the informal communities that build around that. Super interesting point. Yeah, and just think about the size we are talking about. Like, for example, Nigeria, much more than 200 million people, 60% are without any... Wow. Uh, and so if you connect all of these people, just think about the huge number of transactions this makes. Mm-hmm. That's one. Then think about... The, the digital profile of the people you're bringing about in the financial system, that means that uh, above the basic payment capability, you now start building knowledge and therefore a platform for additional financial services, uh, such as microcredits, loans, mm-hmm. and, and so on. Um, and then ultimately you generate a super innovative ecosystem you know, where we have seen in, in Tanzania, for example, uh, the way to acquire a solar battery that can power your phone and light up your house in the evening is paid by a mobile money loan that you pay every day. Wow. It's super powerful. Mm. And this innovation, um, it actually brings me back uh to my own background, I, I spent my teens in Africa, actually, in Burundi, uh, went to school there. You know, I remember you, you, you in Burundi, you, you, don't, you didn't buy a pack of cigarettes. You bought one cigarette. So this, this notion of uh, just in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what you need. Just what you need. Sachet type of financial transactions is really what's what we are looking there so so you combine the innovation of that with the commercial incentive that comes around that and then if you can drive it to scale that's really interesting so i think um with empecia people tend to say it's a bit like the galapagos on madagascar it's this one-off example that nobody can repeat and it's never been made interoperable and i know there are many attempts by safaricom and others now to, to try and change that is is the level one kind of project and vision to try and provide a framework to create that interoperability for, for these communities? Yes. So the, the, the deep belief is that uh, the way to make this happen, and this is, this is inspired by many sort of histories and stories that we have seen, including here in the UK with the faster payment scheme mm-hmm. and, you know, the debit schemes. Uh, so the, there is this notion of uh, shared utility as well that's quite important mm. uh, because Empeza is an exception from one perspective is that it's a single player that made it happen. Usually you would see more players pulling together a little bit, you know, like the banks pull together to manage ATMs mm-hmm. or the telcos pull together to manage antennas because at the end of the day there is a point where it becomes uh, totally uh, non-productive to deploy infrastructures all over again. 
So uh, there is this notion that uh, a shared utility where, where the providers collaborate on the infrastructure to better compete on the services, it's a story we have seen many, many times in many countries all over the planet. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's quite level one project is fostering this thinking of a shared utility and, and especially for things like fraud management. If you think about fraud management, well, first of all, you, you got to do it as a provider and it's not going to bring you any uh, competitive advantage to do it. So why spend money on it? Why not pull it together? So, so there is a lot of that type of thinking as well um, in, 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 the sh in the level one project. It is, uh, you know, it is a sort of a scary, amazing fact, isn't it? Like you say, it's, we've got UK banks spending billions of pounds trying to reach tens of millions of customers, and we've got hundreds of millions of customers across the, across the globe who could be accessed by yeah. relatively smaller mm -hmm. uh, levels of investment to really sort of make a difference. It's um, quite terrifying, isn't it? And, and actually, I guess, you know, the, the opportunities that new technologies kind of bring and obviously yeah. you know like you say at heart uh, you know back to the computing days you know you were a sort of a technologist at heart yeah. in terms of what's going on there you know the real advancements with what we've seen uh, you know maybe not bitcoin specifically yeah. but with you know digital cash digital money more broadly and you know the advancements that we're seeing with with things like blockchain yeah. you know these must be real catalysts for change yeah. in this market. So, indeed, um, uh, things like uh, uh, distribute... I, I, would, I tend to speak more about distributed ledgers uh, um, rather than blockchains because uh, in the context of what we are talking about, this is more appropriate as opposed to, I don't know, blockchain for... Uh, registering real estate assets or something which makes sense. In the context of digital payments, I think it's all about, at the end of the day, trying to reach this instantaneous, real-time, super low-cost transaction that is settled between end users and providers as fast as possible. I like to think of it almost as like... Um a utility version of PayPal that ran with SMS on the front of it. You know, yeah. it's kind of like, it, yeah. it, it's this, you use SMSs on it, but there might be five or six telcos in a given country that actually run it, or it might be it might be a company that comes along and does it. Yeah. It seems to me like you're almost agnostic, but you're saying something like that would be really should, good. Should exist. I, totally, I agree. Mm -hmm. very, very well said. So that's kind of one type of thinking that definitely has influenced our own thinking in terms of what Level 1 project is doing. And today, we consider even that, you know, uh, some people are pushing this to the notion of collaboration between ledgers, with interledger. Mm -hmm. I think this is the right sort of thinking, uh, definitely, and we're watching that closely. So that's kind of one technology. The, the other huge, I think, technology related to all of this is, of course, digital identity, which materializes today most concretely with systems like the Adahar system in India, where you provide biometric authentication using fingerprints or iris scans. India has made huge progress in, in, as, in providing identity to, I think, more than a billion people right now. So... It's huge and ever. Amazing, yeah. 
Uh, yet, I think of it more as a milestone on a broader journey and road uh, towards more of, um, you know, really identity elements and data assets of people that will need safe storage in the future. So that's, that's another huge technology. I also tend to think a lot, it's not really a technology, but it's more of a way of thinking, or I think more and more open sourcing. Because at the end of the day, we are talking about, at the end of the day, a commodity. A utility. A yeah. utility. And ultimately, a utility would benefit from an open source model. So that's a useful way of thinking about this, which, which we are doing. Uh, so, yeah, so these kind of three big technology-related topics are hugely, hugely important and beneficial for... An, an identity in a market where you might not ever have a passport um, and then you're never going to see a branch means that you know you need a better, more digital solution for identity. Yeah, and, and you need a different business model, by the way, uh, as well, because um, we call it tiered KYC. So this notion that, uh, you know, it's okay to not know a lot about a person for a certain type of transactions, bring them in, and then as, you know, more and more is known about the person, then get, get to a higher tier where more things can be done. This notion of tiered KYC, mm -hmm. uh, I think, is associated to the technology side because at the end of the day, we are talking about billions of people. So yeah. there is a need for a super efficient way to do this. Yeah. I think the classic example there as well is um, if... How many people got a coffee at the same time as you from the same place as you did it, boarded the same flight as you at That's the same right. time, yeah. and also then got on the same tube as you did at the same time? Like the, You only need about three, maybe four transactions to know somebody is unique. And then once you've considered that this is a unique individual transacting, you tie that to a mobile phone. And so long as they're transacting on their mobile phone and their transaction pattern is similar, yeah. you know, AI and machine learning could actually do an awful lot to build a risk profile around an individual, which I think is very exciting. And then to push it, I, I like, so if you push it a little bit further and now think about, hey, but smartphones are actually around the door at the appropriate, adequate cost. Mm -hmm. And then you think about what you just said, plus you add social social networks data. Mm -hmm. That's a huge, huge enabler as well. Which is very different to how banking looks from a regulatory perspective in most jurisdictions, yeah. which is yeah. there's this giant wall before you can get an account. Give me your passport or else. Yeah. And then... If you were able to hop over that, then you're in the club. But actually, most of these people can't hop over that line, so they're going to stay outside it. But if I'm sending you one pound and you're sending me another pound back, and then it's one pound fifty and two dollars here, then then suddenly, you know, why not let these people transact at, at, at almost zero risk and marginal cost? And I think this is where you know the, the sort of, there's been a uh, kind of a you know an often sort of statement about uh, the innovation out of necessity. Um, yeah. But but actually, you know, a lot of the things that we're talking about here are massively relevant to to in the UK. You know, like that type of approach, yeah. and I, and I think the you know the necessity of cost efficiency of of um, you know banking platforms in places like Africa. Actually, why would you why would you spend? A hundred times more to do it in the UK than you possibly can do it. So, you know, we, we've seen quite a lot of organizations with 
you know, an eye to, you know, things like Ampesha to replicate them back into, uh, you know, America or the UK or... I think at the end of the day, if this, I, I like to call this innovation frugal because mm -hmm. actually they are not done with huge amounts of... Uh, They are done with a huge amounts of IQ, but not necessarily with huge amounts of money. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you achieve this, well, then why why would we all here in the UK use a different way? Mm. Uh, you know, at, three years ago when I changed jobs and moved to America, I was actually surprised by how you have to pay. <laughs> by its relative difficulty to pay for certain things in even in the United States. And then you go like, wait a minute, if we could do this right there, as simple as sending a text message, well, why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of my, uh, one of my old bosses had a good saying that was, um, think rich, act poor. And I mm. think that's a, mm. it doesn't matter what type of organization you should be. You have high aspirations, but you deliver the best way of doing it. So, uh, But um, I think, you know, we've probably taken up more than your time than uh, is, is necessary and, uh, with you having a whistle-stop tour here. So, Costa, really appreciate you spending time. Um, where can people learn a little bit more about the, the Gates Foundation? So, uh, of course, on gatesfoundation.org. But if you want to know more about Level One Project, there is a dedicated web website. It's called level1project.org. Level One Project in one word. Everything, and that is another principle of what we do, everything we do is public, open, and available on that website. So I, I encourage checking it out. And we'd um, highly recommend you following Costa on Twitter as well. Where, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, my my Twitter handle is Copernic. Uh, with two C's at the end. Obviously, it has some innovation connotation <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, keep, keep consistency in the team. That's awesome. Really appreciate your time. Costa, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, hi, I'm here with Niels and Jazz O'Hara, who I met in Washington at a United Nations meeting, of all things. I was blown away by the fact that they've gone from being in careers where most people stick around with the idea of this is our future to suddenly being I guess people who have a very strong cause and so maybe tell us a bit about your cause and your journey and how you got to where you are today. So hi Chris it's great to be here I'm Jazz and I'm here with my brother. Hello I'm Nils. So Our journey really started about a year and a half ago when we were reading a lot about the refugee crisis in the news. And it was back at a time when the headlines were quite dehumanizing. Things like swarms of migrants and marauding migrants were the terms that we were seeing in the headlines. And it left us with a lot of questions as to who are these people and what happened to them and where do they want to go and why are they in these camps and what's life like for them? And we started reading more and more about this camp, particularly in Calais. And at the time, a lot of people hadn't heard about it, the jungle. And it was kind of not really talked about that much. So we decided to go. We live in Kent, um, so it's not far from our home. And we made the short journey um, to go and see, to try and answer some of the questions that we had um, about the camp. And what happened that day will stay with me forever. It was so crazy, um, not just the conditions, but the people that we met were so kind and wonderful and open and welcoming and heroic actually in their stories 
that we, uh, I wrote a post about it on Facebook um, when I got home and basically that post went viral overnight. So it was shared 65,000 times. It was seen by millions of people and the response and the reaction was just absolutely overwhelming, not just in physical donations, but financial donations and people wanting to help from all over the country, all over Europe, all over the world, actually. So it was really, really overwhelming and it kind of spiraled from there. And the, the note that you posted um, and the reason it went viral is because you were telling the stories of the migrants, not just, you know, talking about these people who are, you know, as you, as you say in the media, um, almost like ants. It's actually human beings. Exactly. So I think that it's that personal relatable level that really um, struck a chord with people. The fact that Nils and I were, you know, ordinary people um, from the UK that didn't have a background in charity. We didn't have a background in politics, but we were still, um, yeah, kind of touched by this situation. And I think that reached a lot of people because of the kind of human level. And what were your jobs at that point? What, what were you doing as, as you're living? So I worked in advertising as a creative and Jazz worked in fashion. So um, very different careers. But when we started doing this, everything spiraled out of control so quickly that we just felt that we had to focus on this 100%. So it seemed like the the obvious thing to do for us to quit our jobs. There was no question about it. Within a month of Jazz writing that post, we had both already quit our jobs and started working on this full time. And what's interesting is that um, I've connected with you mainly because I went to this meeting about digital identities in Washington. And a lot of people in banking are probably thinking, why the hell is Chris interviewing Nils and Jazz about refugees? So what's this got to do with identity and financial services, for example? So I guess the link is blockchain technology and the use of this for identity in the future uh, and digital identity and I think that that's going to be very important with this mass movement of people in stopping things like people smuggling and human trafficking and when people are in this situation they generally either don't have documents or they lose their documents on the way that's why we were at this conference because we wanted to give our version of what we've seen on the ground and why it's important for these people to have a digital identity so if we looked at the stories of the people that you were meeting in Cali, um, you know, how, how can they get to Cali without having documentation, for example? So they use illegal routes. Um, that's the only way they can do it. So, you know, boats across the Mediterranean and then walking across borders across the whole of Europe. So, yeah, generally it's very small, very dangerous crossing, well, very small boats and very dangerous crossings across the Mediterranean. Way too many people per boat so a lot of people die doing this but there's no legal way for them to get across so they have to do it because you know the places that they're coming from are so unsafe and there's no record of some of those people because they didn't have documentation in the first place yeah so a lot of them will never have had any documentation um, and a lot of them will have lost it along the way we've had many examples of people who did have passports and a lot of Syrians you know have passports and stuff but you know they might lose them in the Mediterranean or people smugglers might take them off them and give them to someone else or damage them or for whatever reason. And it seems as though a lot of these people are coming from Syria, Afghanistan, but actually it's not. It's a whole range of different countries. I know you, there's some stories you were saying about, I think, Somalia or Sudan, you know, where kids were being threatened and could have lost their lives. So there's a whole mixture of people in the camp. 
Absolutely. I think there's a common misconception that this refugee crisis is really focused around Syria and the Middle East. But actually in Calais, we're talking about Eritreans, uh, as you say, Sudanese. They make up two of the main nationalities in the camp, along with Afghans. So we're really talking about a melting pot of people representing the world's atrocities, actually. Um, And yeah, as Neil said, the identity is a huge issue because this makes people very vulnerable that they don't have um, identity documents. They're not registered anywhere in these countries. So for example, in Calais we have a lot of unaccompanied children and they are slipping under the radar which is making them very very vulnerable to predatory behaviours when it comes to um, yeah that their safety you know no one will be looking for them if they go missing so it's really really worrying Um, and also the fact that it's happening on our doorstep you know it's really history in the making and I feel that not just the kind of use of blockchain technology as a tool for um, allowing people their digital identity is linking kind of our work to the bank to banking The reason why we're also here is because this crisis is a responsibility of every single one of us and it relates to all of us actually because it's on our doorstep and it's happening around us and we all need to take some kind of action and I think it's very, very important that we all step up and do something. Uh, So do I. That's part of the reason why you're here tonight. But um, I think one of the key things is that you both, I would say sacrifice, but you didn't. You kind of chose to leave your jobs and dedicate yourself to the cause. So what is the cause? It's called the Worldwide Tribe. What is that? Absolutely. So the Worldwide Tribe is our organisation, which has a two-pronged approach. So not only do we run humanitarian projects on the ground, which cover all sorts of things like installing wi-fi into refugee camps but also providing food and shelter and clothing and things like that so basic needs um, things like wi-fi also art and creative projects but the other kind of prong to that two-pronged approach is raising awareness and trying to overturn this negative kind of connotations around immigration and that narrative of refugees and immigrants illegal immigrants as victims or as um yeah, in, in any kind of negative way, what we really want to kind of make people realise is that they're they're human just like you or I and it could have been any one of us that's in this situation and it's just a matter of circumstance that, you know, we, we aren't and, and the people in the camp in Calais are. And as I say, I think we all need to step up and kind of look out for each other in this situation. Yeah, I've been quite shocked at the lack of media coverage of the individuals. I mean, that's what you're really shining the spotlight on. And just before we started this conversation, I said to Niels, what do you think of the £2 million wall that the Brits are going to put around Calais? And he said, well, maybe it's going to be a good thing because a 14-year-old boy died in the motorway just at the weekend. And you sort of go, 14-year-old boy? I mean, you know, what, what are the stories that stand out for you? Well, talking of the 14-year-old boy, we actually have a 14... Well, he's 15 now, but we have a foster brother who um, lived in the camp and he has a very, very crazy story. He also crossed from the Calais jungle to the UK at 14, hiding underneath the Eurotunnel train. And um, his is obviously a story that stands out to us because we're very close to it on a personal level. But yeah, he, he represents one of very, very many young boys who are fleeing compulsory military service and they are crossing the Sahara Desert you know he didn't eat for 15 days he crossed the Mediterranean Sea in an unsafe boat which capsized he crossed Europe alone um, his two friends died in Libya you know it's a it's a, a story that you hear over and over again actually and he represents a large number of young unaccompanied people um, and yeah we hear many many stories um, that kind of stand out to us I wouldn't even know where to start but we have actually many friends that we've kind of and relationships that we've developed in the camp with people that we've become close to because 
you know, they're our age or we have similar interests or we connect on a level that we would be friends outside of this situation as well, you know. And I know from reading some of the things on Facebook and um, your stories about the warmth that you felt, and you mentioned it, but, you know, the fact that these people who have been treated so badly um, embrace you, offer you food, treat you as family, it seems incredible. Yeah, we have the most amazing experiences in that camp. And every single time we go, we're met with, you know, more kindness and more hospitality, which is incredible for people in this situation. A lot of them don't have much to give, but they will share what they do have with you. And they always want you to come and have a cup of tea with them and sit down and they want you to sit in their home with them which is just you know maybe a tent or absolutely nothing at all but they still want to share that with you and share that food and whatever they have with you and to make you feel at home which is really incredible seeing what these people have been through and just to, uh, to wrap up i guess um where can people find out more so we have a website, theworldwidetribe.com, but also we post every day on our Facebook, uh, which is facebook.com forward slash the Worldwide Tribe and Instagram as well. So that's at the Worldwide Tribe. So you can check us out on any of those. So I think you've demonstrated the power of social media, but equally the rise of digital identities and blockchain. And just to underline, the uh, United Nations has a goal by 2030 for every person on the planet to be recorded at birth as a citizen of Earth and have their digital identity recorded on some form of distributed ledger blockchain is most likely. Looking to the future, what's going to be most exciting for you guys in terms of, I know you've got your new ambulance that's been pimped, um, but what's coming next? We do. We do have an amazing uh, vehicle which has been donated to us, which is now looking very beautiful after being pimped. You're absolutely right. So watch out for that. So it's going to be on channel yes, yeah, E4, isn't it? But we have lots of exciting stuff coming up in the pipeline. Lots of worrying stuff as well, because the future is kind of unclear when it comes to the Calais jungle. But we are continuing to grow our reach across Greece and Turkey. And um, yeah, we're continuing to grow kind of as a group of people and as a movement. Um, So I think that we'll continue in that vein, spreading awareness. We're making a documentary at the moment, which highlights the journey. So we have actually taken the journey from the border of Syria in Zatari camp in Jordan through Turkey and then across to Greece. Um, Greece and France and the UK and basically highlighted individuals who are affected by this crisis along the way and that documentary will then kind of show this tapestry of individual stories that make up this bigger picture Um, so that's coming out next month which is really exciting we have lots of important content coming out about people that we've met and things that we've experienced along the way Um, so yeah if you watch watch out on our social media channels for those and in terms of yeah kind of projects on the ground we're also developing our wi-fi project and which is really exciting to be able to connect as many people as possible so they have access to not just communicating with their families but also information about their asylum claims and opportunities like learning languages which are really important for people in these camps when they have they're they're very bored as well you know we have some amazing minds amazing brains we have lots of bankers and engineers and doctors and lawyers and very very educated people um that we're meeting all the time in the camps so yeah allowing them some kind of access to um a bit of an outlet is really really important as well i think we could talk for hours but uh, i think i'll just conclude by saying go to the worldwide tribe and donate and support jazz and nils thank you very much thank you So that's all we've got time for this week. But remember, keep subscribing, keep liking our podcast and recommending it to your friends. Until next week, this has been Fintech Insider. Thank you very much.